Bienvenidos. That's California for welcome to the February 21st edition of National Review's Radio Free California podcast. I'm Will Swain, president of the California Policy Center. You can find my colleagues and me at CaliforniaPolicyCenter.org. You can find my friend and co-host David Bonson right here. He's an economist. He's the host of the Capitol Record podcast and author of the new book, Full-Time Work and the Meaning of Life. And of course, he's also founder of the eponymous investment firm, The Bonson Group. Hello, David. Hello, Will. How are you, my friend? I'm good. The rain is uh, letting up down here in Southern California, and it looks like uh, skies are clearing up. Uh, you're in Nashville, right? I am in Nashville today. Uh, as you know, been traveling around, lots of travel still to come. So we got a little ways to go till I get to rejoin you. But uh, this is a beautiful country, and I am proud to be an American. <laughs> I'm proud I, you, to be, I, you know what's fun about being in Nashville is uh, a lot of people seem just happy, you know? Is that right? Uh, not the same sense of gloom um, that we, we might find out here sometimes. Yeah, I don't know. It just it, it feels uh, like an interesting energy. What's funny is that the bulk of Californians, um, when they come out to Nashville, and obviously a ton have, they don't come to Nashville. We've talked about this before. They come to Franklin. Right. Uh, Franklin's gotten huge. There's a lot of suburbs. I had to take a car this morning to a suburb called Smyrna, Tennessee, which is maybe 25 minutes from my downtown hotel. And I was doing an interview at on site at a radio station. And so I'm driving through the suburbs and around. And it was just interesting to me that, I mean, it's, you know, different strokes are in folks. I'm not being critical at all. It's just a comment maybe on my own taste and preferences but like, you know, I wouldn't move from New York or California to come here, but I love it here. But I love downtown Nashville. I love the city. I like the skyscrapers. I like walking to the restaurants and the and the meetings and just sort of the action. And I think what most of the Californians that come out here like is the opposite of that. Mm. I think they like the sleepy, quiet suburbs. And so it's just, you know, a different style or preference. But the whole um, Franklin thing the people love it and and there's certainly better laws and culture and policies and things here i get all that um you know i'm sure i'd love to file my state tax return here let's put it that way <laughs> and i i wasn't laughing um to disrespect your proud to be an american it's just that doesn't go without saying these days um among people who are you know used to be the party of uh the flag um, the military, you know, real patriotism. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be too elliptical here, David, but I, I am just, you know, so struck by uh, Tucker Carlson, who knows better, uh, traveling off to uh, kiss the uh, the bare buttocks of Vladimir Putin. I'm just, I, I just struggle with that. You know, I know the guy knows better, so I'm not sure what's going on there. You might have some insight, but maybe that's I, well. My insight, my insight is I don't know what to think about what he knows because I make the comment that he's performing and that um he, tucker who anyone knows um is an intelligent person um that i think it's a, a cynical act of of disingenuity and people who know tucker far better than i uh repeatedly tell me that i'm wrong that he is not performing that he is a true believer mm. and um really uh fond of Putin and fond of uh, the great opportunities that exist in Hungary and Moscow. And so, 
Um, what they're basically saying is that he's not cynical and immoral, as I'm suggesting, but that he's a, I'm an idiot. Mm. Yeah. Back, back to the old saying in the newsroom, the guy's either stupid or uh, or a liar. Um, sometimes yeah. both. Um, hey, David, This uh, today you and I are recording uh, Wednesday morning here. It's February 21st. And 200 years ago, on this day at daybreak, uh, the largest uprising against Spanish and or Mexican authority in California broke out. That was the Chumash Revolt, the Chumash Native Americans. What were you doing that day, Will? Do you remember it like it was yesterday? (laughs) You know, you kids. Um, Yeah, so uh, here's what's absolutely fascinating about it. It's it's an event in which 2,000 Native Americans in Santa Barbara, what we now call Santa Barbara County, uh, attacked the three missions there and uh, occupied them for some time, hoping to throw off uh, the mission structure. Uh, Much had transpired, of course, in the intervening, I don't know, 55 years or so since Father Sarah set up the missions. And though Sarah is much hated by progressives, there's a lesson in here about Sarah's value, because the fact is that Sarah, and we've talked about this in the show, David, Junipero Sarah, the guy who brings the missions to California beginning in roughly 1769, that he is a... Really, for his time, he is a civil rights leader, if you will. He is a guy who believes in the sanctity of life, in the dignity of the individual soul. In a way, the military uh, expedition that he travels with does not always. And so he's constantly at odds with the military. Uh, they want rough, tough discipline meted out to the uh, to the locals. Sarah, of course, wants to encourage the locals to settle into Catholicism. And his defense of the natives against the worst outrages of the Spanish colonial project are generally forgotten these days or even, you know, deliberately spun into propaganda so that we can tear down statues and tear down the history of California. But Sarah was dead for 40 years by the time of the Chumash revolt, and he was buried in what's now Carmel, California. And in those four decades, the missions had indeed been secularized. They had been turned into these economic engines for the production of beef and hides and wine, etc. And in that transformation, the Franciscan priests who followed Sarah were really marginalized. They were treated as more of a nuisance and without the encumbrance of that really dynamic religious spirituality, that faith that Sarah brought to California, to Alta California, uh, Spanish and then Mexican officials after the Mexican independence of 1821 began to demand much more from the indigenous population and resorting more and more frequently to tough discipline and even real outright violence. And that's what brings us to February 21st, 1824. There's some evidence that the uprising that day had been planned as a coordinated attack on the three missions, but it's certainly true that the fighting erupts after a Spanish soldier reportedly beats um, a Chumash child. He's described as a young boy in the mission Santa Inez. So immediately, this just sets off the rebellion. Uh, Chumash warriors inside Santa Inez burn the mission's buildings to the ground. By the time military enforcements from the Santa Barbara Presidio, which you can see to this day, David, have you been up to the Presidio in Santa Barbara? I have not. Yeah, if you go down to the beach in Santa Barbara and walk directly up into the town on State Street, off to your right is a Presidio, and way up on State Street, just off State Street up there, is the Mission uh, the Mission Santa Barbara. So detachment soldiers detached, deployed from the Presidio, that is a military base, uh, go roaring out to Santa Inez, but by the time they get there, 
the uh, Chumash vanished, only to reappear almost magically in an armed attack on the nearby mission La Purisma. They quickly overwhelm the garrison there, but they allow the Mexican soldiers, their families, the priests, all to evacuate. Um, and then they overwhelm the mission Santa Barbara. And again, the Chumash allow the Mexicans there to depart, joining other refugees in the Santa Barbara Presidio. So the Chumash held just that one mission, the mission La Purisima, while they left the older, the other ones smoldering. Mexican soldiers come back to La Purisima about three weeks later after those first attacks. And the Mexicans, 109 of them on foot and horse and pulling at least one cannon, as far as I can tell, they surround the mission and they just open fire. They just start pounding the hell out of their own mission. And the Chumash, of course, inside, they fight back with musket fire arrows and a cannon of their own. The battle was over in just two and a half hours, and inside, 16 Chumash were dead. Uh, it's noteworthy, I think, that at least one priest, Friar Antonio Rodriguez, had chosen to stay with the Chumash. They encourage him, the Chumash do, to go out and negotiate a surrender with the Spaniard, uh, with the Mexicans, rather. Uh, the Mexicans agree. They seize two cannons, 16 muskets, 150 lances, six machetes, and innumerable bows and arrows. That's from a contemporaneous account. I'm going to skip a lot of the details, but, it, you know, the the expeditionary battles go on the, the chumash retreat up into the santa inez mountains and the, the, the i keep calling them spanish i'm so sorry by this time they are mexicans who speak spanish the mexicans chase them up into the hills and they finally actually encourage most of the chumash to return to the the missions and uh, peace is of a kind is restored and that's it. Between this revolt and 24 years later, the raising of the American flag over California at the end of the, the war with Mexico, Mexican authorities just resorted to the feudalism that they had practiced for 300 years in the New World. And when I say feudalism, I mean they handed out these vast tracts of land to people like John Sutter. You know, anybody who would become a Mexican citizen and could promise to provide for the security, the defense of the land against not just the Native Americans, but also this new wave of immigrants entering California who were Americans of European descent. This really terrified the Spanish. And uh, so that takes us back to John Sutter, Fort Sutter, and John Sutter's unwillingness to keep those American immigrants out. And I think our listeners know the rest of the story, David. Well, uh, once you get to Sutter, uh, that's where everyone kind of picks up and knows, you know, what what comes next. Yes. Um, well, <laughs> you say listen, this with such a smirk. I love it. No, and and that's the thing is like there's some funny things I want to say, and yet it would be so wrong because I, they're not that funny, and it would give the impression that like I'm <laughs> making funny for diving into this history where I think this history is fascinating. I know listeners love it. I think it's important. I wish more people. It's interesting. Uh, there's still a big movement of guys like us that want people to hold on to American history. But I wonder if part of the reason that Californians have totally abandoned Californian history, besides great Californians like yourself, is because they, people have given up on California more than they've given up on the country. In other mm. words, I'm I'm just sort of pontificating out loud right now, but you your your fondness for history is directly correlated to your hope for the future. And like people still have a little bit of interest in American history because they still have some hope that America can be righted uh, for good reason. It certainly can be. And I wonder if California, like there's a little more despondency and so a little less enthusiasm for history. Because to me, that story you just told is fascinating. And I think a lot of people... 
should embrace it. And then perhaps, maybe, just maybe, 200-year-old stories, 150-year-old stories, 100-year-old stories, at some point, people would realize that there was a great state that was a golden state that has now become a failed state um, and that uh, it, it requires us to love the history enough to therefore love the future. Well, it also appeals, and and you know, I full disclosure. Everybody, I think, knows. Frequent listeners know I'm I'm a Catholic kid. I was raised, you know, going to school at the old mission in San Juan Capistrano. Um, come from a long line of uh, Californios on my dad's side. My kids are the eighth generation of of our family to have been born here, and I, so you know, full disclosure, I'm attached in some in some ways to this this era, to history, and. I'd also like to think, though, that what history tells us is that the future is, you know, as the old Clash song goes, the future is unwritten. They weren't the first to say that. Um, just love their clarion call. But that doesn't mean that we get to go back and rewrite the past. And the fact that, you know, Sarah's statue has been toppled all over the state, especially in the summer of 2020, you know, removed from public places formally and sometimes informally just torn down. Um is based on real ignorance of the role of this this really good and brave man, and I, I it, it was I, it Cal was it Californians that wanted to get rid of those statues, or was that caught up in a broader national move, the same move that was pulling out Robert E. Lee in Virginia, that was pulling out um, even even people less controversial. In, in other parts of the country, if you look at the totality, now this didn't end up happening, but they wanted to take down Columbus from Columbus Circle. And, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, even that was a bridge too far for some of the very left wing um, uh, people in New York. But I guess I'm just wondering when that was happening, we talked about it on the podcast, I remember it, but it's all a blur to me because there was a national movement of trying to erase history and I don't know if that movement of getting rid of Sarah was uh, California-driven or was it left-wing, left or uh, right coast-driven. Yeah, I think it's it's a couple of things. There is a local progressive effort to declare. You know, I mean, it's it's modest, it's very fringe, but um, you know, the the whole Atlanista movement, this notion that the people of Mesoamerica really own everything where the white people stand um you see this erupting in city council meetings or school board meetings we are unoccupied land you know once owned by the tonga people um but they're not well, going to move or sell their though how i mean i know you're critical of those people that are doing that but have you noticed how sincere and authentic they are that they've all sold off their assets and given <laughs> the money on to indian reservations and that Aren't they, they themselves have relocated that they refuse to shop they refuse to live on the land and even bathe in the prosperity that they joy under the blood of dead black and brown people. Have you noticed their sincerity in their high moral conviction? <laughs> Again, well, I, I noticed my you're coffee laughing now. right now. <laughs> and trying to stay away from drinking coffee. Um I can't afford another microphone. Hey, David, in, in other big news, uh, there was a really fascinating couple of stories. Phil Klein in National Review, followed up by Jim Garrity. And this was about the likelihood that, in fact, Democrats should pivot immediately in the presidential campaign here 
to Kamala Harris. Right. Uh, here's here's how Jim Garrity put it. Late last week, after President Biden's disastrous primetime conference, our Phil Klein delivered an assessment that sounded insane, and yet in light of recent events, deserves serious consideration. Quote, Democrats would be better off facing Donald Trump with Kamala Harris as their presidential nominee than taking their chances with a rapidly declining Joe Biden. Uh, yes, yes, Garrity writes, Harris is a joke, a liability, a walking disaster, uh, who is so self-evidently a weak candidate and leader. Uh, but he says, look, she immediately takes off the table the Democrats' problem with Biden's age. Um, you, know, you and I might argue, as other Californians would, that uh, that just simply replaces one problem with several others. Um, she doesn't poll better than Biden, but as Garrity points out, you know, not not dramatically worse than Joe Biden, like a point or something. Uh, and so there is this kind of serious effort afoot. And then here comes. Well, no, no, no. There's not a serious effort. There's a I'm serious thought. Thought. Thank you. But what do you think of the thought? Because I have an opinion, but I don't want to poison the well. So I want to hear your poison first. it. Well, no, I, I prefer I to have you right. Will I've now come to the conclusion. That Kamala is a less likable and worse candidate than Biden, who gives them a better chance of winning. And, and here's what I mean. You get Kamala and her bad side with Biden because anyone who's saying, look, I, I don't like Kamala, you know, but Biden's health, well, Biden's health is a problem and I don't like Kamala. What do people already are dealing with the fact? that they're going to get Kamala with Biden. I don't know if it's in one month, one year, two years, but pull anyone you want. Pull the biggest Biden fan in the world and ask him if they think that guy's going to be president for five more years. Give me a break. Well, Nobody and, and, believes it. I don't know if he's getting down the stairs tomorrow, but he's not getting up the stairs when he's 103. Hmm. So there is no. So you already have the downside of Kamala with Biden. Therefore, what is the play here? If we assume that they're not pivoting to a Gavin and to a Whitmer and to a Shapiro, uh, my whole theory of uh, that it, Biden was never going to run, it was always contingent on they had an exit path for Kamala, that the Obamas could talk her out of running, that she would mm -hmm. go, you know, take a life of, of riches and glamour as opposed to it. But so, so assume that I'm wrong on that. Can they kick her out? and just have delegates go to Newsom at the convention if Kamala wants to be president? Of course they can't. They can't lose that black vote, that female vote, that identity politics vote that they want, even if it's marginal. It's too close of an election. So here's the thing. She's so unlikable. But what is the entire strategy to win this election? This is not rocket science. It is not only the only play it is very likely the play that ends up working. We're not Trump. That's it. That's the only reason Biden got elected in 2020. Mm -hmm. well, there are two people that are not Trump, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Mm -hmm. One of them is unlikable. One of them is an invalid. You get the unlikable with the invalid. You don't get the invalid with the <laughs> unlikable. I think I'm being very logical here. I think you this are. I think this is good political calculus. Now, I don't like either of the scenarios. If I'm a Democrat, I still think we needed to get rid of Biden and Kamala a year ago and go run Josh Shapiro or go run Gavin Newsom or go run Gretchen Whitmer. They don't have a great bench, period, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I'm just saying there is a massive liability of Joe Biden. 
for the inflation, economy, age, blah, 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 Afghanistan, other things, all of which could, there are a lot of things that could get worse with, with Israel, Hamas, he's got the, the Gaza and pro-Palestinian camp has mattered him, and then that whole thing could escalate. There's a lot of issues. But the argument against Kamala, I agree with. She's as unlikable, and those video clips of her being unable to get a sentence out, that all of that stuff is just brutal. But Will, that's there. If you if Biden is president, Kamala is president. I don't mean to break it to people. And if I'm the Trump campaign, and I promise you Susie Wiles knows this, I would just say to all of you people who do not like Trump, and all of you that um, you know are struggling with, well, do I just sort of put up with a few more years of Biden and try to figure it out? You won't get a few more years of Biden. You're going to get Kamala Harris. That's going to be their campaign. So if they're going to have to run with against, if Kamala's liabilities are going to be on the ticket anyways, you may as well shed yourself from the 85-year-old liability um, that I, I, and just go all in on your strategy, which is what? Whether you're Biden or Kamala, your only strategy to win the presidency is keep this Donald Trump away. It's, bare, it's at least a 50% chance of being the right strategy. Well, the, um, the Democrat consultants that I'm friendly with um, now admit that the window seems to be closing on Gavin Newsom. There was a recent poll from Emerson that shows that Biden uh, loses to Trump just at this point by about one one point. So well within the margin of error that Harris only loses by three in the most recent. This is an Emerson yeah, poll. You also just do national polls. Well, wor- it's worthless. You got to look of at course. battleground states. Yeah, I understand. Um, but but it is interesting, and I think it's telling that just in the if you just look at this internally by its own logic, this poll then asks, well, how about Gavin Newsom? Well, he loses by ten, uh, and then how about Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer? She loses by twelve. Now, a lot of this might just be name ID. My guess is, you know, when when you mention Newsom, or it's all Whitmer, name ID, brother. It's all name ID. I know I, I'm not picking on you. I'm picking on the existence of the poll. You can't poll a candidate who's the president and a candidate who's the vice president and a candidate who 46 of the states have never heard of. Mm-hmm. It, it just, it doesn't, it is apples to carburetors. Yeah. Um, nice image. So, you know, it gets worse, I think, for Will you tell Gavin. me offline what a carburetor is just <laughs> later when we're done? I, would I had one in my that. car. I don't know if I still do anymore. I don't Hold on. Let know. me see if Google works on this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I remember my carburetors from college days meaning something entirely different. Uh, here's a, a, a headline that just came out a few hours ago. This is in the Sacramento Bee. Big story that broke yesterday. The legislative analyst's office came out with a new estimate, a new appraisal of the budget deficit. And let's just, you know, set the context. Uh, what was it? Two years ago, Gavin Newsom was crowing that he was the, you know, perhaps the greatest business genius in all of the world because California had a hundred billion dollar surplus. You and I immediately pointed out that you don't have a hundred billion dollar surplus when you have a nearly two trillion dollar debt obligation looming over your state. Um, nevertheless, we're we found out of few months ago that the state of California was in real trouble that, um, you know, Newsom's been saying, well, there's a $38 billion deficit. The legislative analyst office shot back and said its own analysis was about $20 billion higher. That's $58 billion. Neither number, David, is good. 
this has Newsom cutting all kinds of programs, getting into fights with lawmakers who have their own pet projects uh, at risk now. But then yesterday, the LAO comes out with a new report, which says that, in fact, the budget deficit is much worse than anticipated, much worse than Newsom uh, has ever acknowledged. It's about $73 billion. Uh, now, Newsom is fighting back and saying, oh, the LAO can't do math, but let's remember that our governor is dyslexic. Um, and I don't say that to disparage people who suffer from this, but he is also um, lacking in numerical literacy. So um, the oh, LAO... Will, not dyslexic, alcoholic. Ah, sorry. I get them mixed up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, can't, I can't be sued because of uh, Google. It's all there, guys. <laughs> you can look it up if you don't believe me. Oh, my gosh. Well, the, here's how uh, Sacramento Bee writes it. Uh, yeah, you got to love the way the Bee presents this, David, which is that this isn't really a real problem. It's just kind of epiphenomenal. It's just a it's just flotsam on the current affairs, a debate between two powerful entities, the governor's office and this thing called the legislative analyst's office. I'm telling you, the LAO knows its math. Uh, they are not screwing around. They are not exaggerating. This is not a difference of opinion. This is deliberate spin on one side and hard numbers on the other. The LAO says that it, it even offers solutions for Newsom, but you're going to love the list of uh, recommended cuts they uh, they offer. Um, first of all, they offer an increase in taxes. They're not saying do this. They're just saying, of course, the governor could do this. You know, emergency taxes drive well, up the revenue. Managed care organization tax. Uh, you can you, you can get a whole billion dollars. Um, to help fund Medi-Cal expansion for illegal immigrants. Hey, um, how, how will that one pull? Just yeah. curious. How's that going to go over? <laughs> I'd like to run a commercial with that exact language. Don't you love it? Uh, yeah, so but, the LAO... This is their language. I'm not making this up. This is the no. left. We yes. have a $73 billion shortfall, but we can cover a billion of it if you will allow us to take some additional money that you pay for managed care um, to cover the undocumented immigrants. Is everyone That's cool right. with that? Yes. And and this has been, you know, just, uh, I mean, a lightning strike for Newsom, that that problem with illegal health care. I mean, it's illegal individual health care. Um, and it's going to get worse, as you point out. But the LAO says, look, you could uh, you could make cuts. And it says here categories of cuts include business and labor. Uh, cuts to business. I don't know even what that means, in fact, but I do know what it means to say cuts in labor, you know, because the government does have employees and those employees are parts of unions. And you can imagine that uh, the unions will fight back on that because union members pay union dues and union dues go into Democratic political campaigns. They're not going to come after labor. There's not a chance. Criminal justice, you know, they can please two kinds of people by closing prisons and, uh, uh, Etc. Uh, cuts to education, which are constitutionally required payments, thanks to uh, California's Democratic supermajority. Health and Human Services. No, 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 homeless. no. That's not true. That's not true. Tell me, please. Prop ninety eight was passed in nineteen ninety eight by mm -hmm. the voters. I'm sorry. Yes, you are correct. They did not please. have a supermajority then, and the voters did it. And so it's the easiest mm -hmm. prop for me to remember because Prop ninety eight was passed in ninety eight. And that is the issue they're dealing with on the bookkeeping side is they haven't yet put in the mandatory increases for schools and community colleges. And, and it, that is uh, voted on by the voters. So it's it's more absurd. Yes, but I'm just right. pointing out that this Thank one you, you can't pin on the Democrats. You have to pin on the idiots who vote for the Democrats. Will, I have a question for you. Yeah. 
have I been complimentary of Gavin Newsom's political instincts on this podcast? And when I have been, have I been serious? Yes, of course. Yeah. I, when I have pretended to be complimentary of what he actually stands for and does and believes, I, have I been facetious? Yes, of course. Okay. I totally disagree with the way he's playing this politically. I think that when you say we're going to have a $38 billion budget gap, and then others are uh, project it could be $53 billion, and you go, no, 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 your numbers are wrong. And then they come out and go, no, it might be seventy-three. Uh, and you get all defensive to say, we think it's going to be closer to 38. And you're banking on the fact now that it will be lower than 73 and that people will, you'll then be able to focus on that as opposed to the fact that it will be much higher than 38. That's his politics here. That's the calculus mm. he's playing. He, it's all based on the idea that once voters accepted 38 as just for some reason acceptable, that there is some higher number that they won't accept. And he's wrong. Just go say, yes, it's going to be 73. I, I, the deficit doesn't matter um, as long as we're going to let rich people get away with anything, even though they're paying the highest taxes in the state, in the, in in the, the country. country. Yeah. And, and just go say to the voters, the deficit has to do with other things they're not going to understand. And say, I'll do whatever I have to do to protect um, health care for the underprivileged and hide behind class warfare. But the idea that 38 versus 73 or 58 or 56 or 49, those numbers don't mean a damn thing to voters. And, and we know this because they already said 38 sounds cool to me. I'll take a $38 billion mm -hmm. deficit mm -hmm. for a state during a, a year of economic expansion. That sounds like a good thing. I don't know what he's worried about. Who cares what the number is to the voters? It's all the same thing. You're, you're saying, I think, that most the average Californian is no more numerically literate than, than the governor, or perhaps only even marginally or dramatically less literate on, on, on numbers. And so, oh, I think know. I think he's numerically literate. I think he's a political animal. I don't think yeah. Gavin Newsom doesn't know that 53 is higher than 38. I think he yeah. knows that, but he's a politician. Sure. Okay. Fair enough. And thank you for correcting me there. I think you, I think you're right. Uh, so your your point is just that most people aren't going to care. It's not a material number to them. It's like I love these news stories where they say that you know some some uh, I don't know natural phenomenon, a storm or something, is bigger than the entire region of Botswana. It's like uh, how 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 big is Botswana? I'm really not sure where that is. So yeah, but it's, this I, is, can I point something else out? Well, it's even worse than that. It, it's it's. This storm is going to be bigger than Botswana, or you could say this storm is going to kill you 10 mm. times in a row. And then the 11th time, it's chicken little stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You have the law of large numbers is that 38 billion and 53 billion are the same number to a normal person. And this is now where I pivot and acknowledge the dishonesty and the fiscal irresponsibility and the fiscal incompetence of the left while pointing the finger at the right who has been guilty of chicken little for 20 years. You cannot say the next this, the next that, the next deficit, the state's going to go under and and the world just keeps turning. And at some point people don't listen to you anymore. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that at some point there won't be a real moment, whether it's a bang or a whimper that, that plays out over time. What is the expression? Uh, slowly, then suddenly, something to that mm -hmm. effect. Uh, gradual. What is it? It's it's um, 
gradually then suddenly yeah, yeah gradually then suddenly yeah right something like that so so my point my point is is that i don't know why gavin's getting in a fight with his own legislative analyst about a number that you and i know matters in terms of who's telling the truth what the precise expectations are what the factors are this prop 98 thing gets a bit more nuanced but mm. politically I just don't know what Gavin's worried about. Who cares if the number is something higher than 38? You just told the voters it's going to be 38 and they shrugged it off. You may as well say it's going to be 138. It's the mm -hmm. same thing. What's 34 trillion national debt and then it's going to be 30. It was 30 trillion. And now it's going to be 33 trillion, uh, 36 trillion. And nobody, the, the, nobody cares. Mm -hmm. Well, the one thing that, uh, you know, there, there is a kind of, law of gravity here and that is is that uh most of our listeners likely know this but you know states cannot run deficits the way the federal government can they can't just produce more cash or you know borrow more money to just sort of float the deficit i guess they could borrow it in the form of a bond but it's not the same at the state level to state level you have a hard deadline by which you must balance your budget constitutionally required not in the state required by the federal government that all the states yeah. balance their budgets so newsom can lay politics so I, I think there's you know two options here you've pointed them out newsom just just capitulate because in the end capitulate to the fact the fact you know the la the fact of the lao's analysis or at least say look we disagree about the exact number but you know it's clear that we have a big number to get to and you know we'll work this out with our colleagues in the state capitol uh, the other one is just to keep lying about it, I think. And then when the collision hits in June and they're trying to actually balance this budget, um, he's going to fall hard to earth. And that headline will be far worse. So I think, yeah, I like your uh, I like your solution. Let's turn to the U.S. Senate race. That's, of course, uh, Katie Porter. Oh, man, Adam Schiff. Getting, it's getting crazy. <laughs> well, here's my favorite story. You and I have talked about this almost every two years since 2016, that the Democrats want to talk about how bad Donald Trump is and how dangerous the MAGA extremists are. David, the, the door knockers, walkers and talkers are showing up at my door on the phone talking to me all the time about MAGA extremists and how their candidate in this or that race is going to fight the MAGA extremists. And yet news broke a few weeks ago that Adam Schiff was actually spending money to pump up Steve Garvey. Now, Steve Garvey, of course, is the former Dodger and Padre baseball player, not a guy with any kind of political track record and has revealed his shallowness of experience on the debate stage. Um, but more importantly, Schiff started spending money in that race for Steve Garvey. And the goal there was to raise Garvey's stock in the race so that Garvey would, would beat Porter and Barbara Lee, uh, the Oakland Democrat who is just way behind and hasn't got a chance in hell at this point, but um, would would marginalize those two progressives so that Schiff would have a clear red versus blue Republican versus Democrat uh, candidate opposing him in the November in the November general. So he starts trying to in, you know really boost Steve Garvey's campaign fortunes among Republicans so that they will beat out uh, Porter and Lee. Well. Katie Porter went nuts when this happened. She came out at the time and she said, let me see if I can find it here. Uh, Adam Schiff knows he will lose to me in November. That's what this brazenly cynical ad is about. Furthering his own political career, boxing out qualified Democratic women candidates and boosting a Republican candidate to do it. We need honest leadership, not mm. political games. Well, uh, she's now decided that uh, if you can't beat him, join him. She's starting to spend money 
to support Steve Early, another Republican in the race. Now, her goal seems to be if I can just divide Garvey and Early voters, that is Steve Early voters, then I, Katie Porter, hop into second place behind Adam Schiff. And in that race, I'm confident I can beat him because I'm a progressive, I'm a woman, I'm a single mom, and I drive a minivan. Um, and also, I have a, a, a dry erase board. So, you know, this is this is more flotsam, much more of a kind of a an after dinner drink, if you will, than anything really critical. But this is the 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 the, the humorous and somewhat you know just kind of uh, demoralizing thing here is to watch Democrats talk about how dangerous the MAGA extremists are, and then spend money uh, to promote MAGA extremism. A uh, little bit now, like are Hope they, and Hitler. Did, are they saying Steve Garvey is a MAGA extremist? No, there that that I, I, yes, I, I should say rank and file grassroots. That's what I hear when they knock on my door. This, you know, you got to vote for Katie Porter. She could beat the MAGA extremists. And See, I here's say, what I Garvey? here's what I would say. Where I think I do disagree with you a little, but I totally Please. understand what you're saying. I think you're using the wrong example to make the right point. That in 2022, there is no question. And you and I called it out then, my friend, that the Democrats were financially supporting candidates who had a chance of winning on the basis that they had um, less of a chance to win than the candidate they were afraid of. So they mm -hmm. were supporting a MAGA candidate to get the MAGA candidate on the ticket so they could beat the MAGA candidate. And unfortunately, for those of us who were critical of the strategy, it basically worked everywhere they did it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the reason that that is cynical and dangerous is they proclaim the risk of this MAGA extremism, but there was no question they were playing with fire, right, by their own rules. In the Garvey case, nobody believes there's any risk at all of him winning. None. So I'm not sure I agree that what Schiff is doing is is wrong or even in that category. I could make the argument it would be really dumb for him not to do it. Mm. He's a shoe-in for the top two. Well, by the way, he's a shoe-in for number one in the primary. Mm -hmm. And um, the whoever is a Democrat against a Republican is a shoe-in to win in November. So why should he put himself through a campaign against Katie if some of this stuff can work? Now, the re reason not to do it would be because what if you end up with Carrie Lake and she ends up winning, mm -hmm. which was the risk they took in Arizona when they were doing mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. And she could have won, but of course she ended up not winning in that governor race. So they were sort of vindicated in doing it, but that was playing with fire. I don't think Adam Schiff's playing with fire. Um, I think he's just beating Katie Porter at her own game. Fair enough. Uh, that that's a good point. Uh, you know, they're, they're, Katie Porter and her foot soldiers out here on the streets, at least in the streets of her own home district. Uh, you know, I live right near UC Irvine, where she was famously a law professor before she ran for Congress. And um, you know, the university students and other faculty who come and knock on our doors dutifully every weekend and some nights and send us text messages say she's fighting the MAGA extremists like Steve Garvey, um, like uh, Steve Early. And, you know, it's it, it, that that's grotesque. But I, I see your point. You know, Steve Garvey, um, say what you will about him. He was a good baseball player. He's a terrible politician. And if oh you read, he's not even a politician. This is a if joke. You, 
Well, it does. It does make me feel, and you know, I don't want to besmirch anybody's good name, but it just has that feel of a consultant who needed some work and found a relatively wealthy guy to fund his own campaign, and it's all you have to do. A, it's what, it's what yeah, the best consultants it. do. Yeah, the the best consultants no longer need to work on finding um, races to win. They need to find candidates who don't know they can't win that have yeah. pockets. It's a brilliant it's business model, and the and the best national consultants they do it for a living. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I think that, that it is fair to say that anything that is legal and that risk adjusted does not lead you to a downside you find unacceptable seems to me what you're supposed to do to win a race. And the problem that the Katie Porter people have, uh, with what Schiff is doing, cause it could very well work. I don't think it will. I still think you're going to end up with Schiff versus Katie in November, but if you end up with Schiff versus Garvey and they just get to run away with the Senate race and Katie already cannot refile in her own congressional district, the deadline for that was December. So she will be out of politics then, right? Mm -hmm. If what they do works, for Katie to say this is unfair is like a football team taking a knee at the end of a game. Like they have a lead and the other team doesn't have timeouts. And you're like, we're not going to risk anything. We're going to let the clock run out. And then the other team going, hey, don't take a knee, chicken. Mm -hmm, Come mm -hmm. play against me. Give me the ball back and see what mm -hmm, I can do. And you're like, yeah, mm -hmm. no, I'm just going to go ahead and win instead. Right. <laughs> but that's what that's what her whining seems like to me here. Yeah. Um, she, all things being equal, I don't want it to work because I would rather see Democrat on Democrat campaign violence. I think, and I mm -hmm. use violence obviously mm -hmm, metaphorically mm -hmm. here. I think it is. Um, it will be humorous to watch the just absolutely insufferably awful annoying adam schiff versus katie porter these mm -hmm. two people you couldn't make up more skin crawling people outside of the vice presidency of the united states and and i would love to see them run against each other spend a lot of money and all these kind of negative things but i i'm i just don't get animated by this one um, because Garvey obviously can't win and Katie could win. So it seems to me like Adam's just playing smart politics. Let's uh, turn our attention to immigration. We talked, uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, Gavin Newsom is still holding on to, I got to pay uh, health care insurance. I got to fund health care insurance for illegal immigrants in California. Uh, the issue has become, of course, national. The issue that is of uh, border control. And last week, House Republicans impeached uh, Homeland Security Secretary uh, Alejandro Mayorkas in a very you know historic very narrow vote. I think it was uh, one vote difference, 214 to 213. And just, you know, just a reminder here, uh, Alejandro Mayorkas, born in Havana, but uh, grew up in L.A., went to Cal, I think he went to Berkeley uh, as an undergrad and then LMU, what, then Loyola University for, um, for law school. Um, he's now the um, Homeland Security Secretary. Uh, so he's been impeached. But uh, there was an interesting uh, little footnote there that I, I thought I wanted to ask you about, and that's. Really, uh, I, I just think one of California's best uh, congressional Republicans is a guy, you know, Tom McClintock, whom a lot of people, I hope, already know. If you don't, he's just he is so good, so honest, so smart um, and so low profile in, in the best sense, you know, real kind of humble guy. Um, but he wrote a very brief response to before the impeachment vote he to to the, the House members who wanted uh, Mayorkas uh, impeached. He said, 
Secretary, Secretary Mayorkas is indeed guilty of maladministration of our immigration laws on a cosmic scale. But we know that's not grounds for impeachment because the American founders specifically rejected it. I can't think of another congressman who referred to the founding recently. Um, he goes on to say, look, the border crisis can't be fixed by replacing one left-wing official with another. It can only be fixed by the American people at the ballot box. I think there he's uh, channeling David Bonson. By replacing this administration with one that is committed to securing our borders, defending our country, and upholding the rule of law, Americans are already coming to that conclusion, and I'm afraid that stunts like this impeachment vote don't help. Tom McClintock is an American hero. Tom McClintock is 100% right. It's rare that it happens. It's sort of a Scalia voting in favor of flag burning, where the the the, uh, the prudential um, um, decision goes against the emotion mm. because a lot of people, for good reason, do not like this Homeland Security Secretary. I don't like him. He has failed in his duty, but it is not impeachable. And Tom McClintock is right, and he's doing his job as if it were a sacred honor. Kudos, Tom McClintock. Let's stay with the border. Um, I want to ask you about three stories that came out in rapid succession and seem, I think, to really highlight uh, the problem we've got here in California. Um, the city of Huntington Beach says it's going to put a measure on the November ballot and that, if if the voters approve it, it would require, I'm sorry, I think this is in March. Yes, it is. It's in March. Um, so this March measure would preclude people who cannot provide voter ID from actually voting. That, of course, has roused the indignation of the left. Um, the the uh, Let's see here. We've got Rob Bonta and Shirley Weber, our California State Secretary of, uh, I'm sorry, let's see, Weber, Shirley Weber, Secretary of State. This is really complicated. AG, uh, Attorney General Rob Bonta. They wrote in a um, an announcement that if the city moves forward and places us on the ballot, we stand ready to take appropriate action to ensure that voters' rights are protected and state election laws are enforced. They added that voter ID laws only serve to suppress voter participation without providing any discernible benefit. Um, it should be noted that a state judge already heard a complaint that this should, you know, this should, this must be removed from the ballot because it was discriminatory. The judge said, no, absolutely not. I cannot remove this. Let the voters have their say and then we'll consider it in court. Um, but we've, we've now got that going on, this showdown in the city of Huntington Beach to require voter ID in local elections. But at the same time, there was no outrage on the left, no Rob Bonta, no uh, Shirley Weber complaining about a story out of San Francisco. Here's the headline from KQED. San Francisco appoints first non-citizen to serve on its elections commission. Remember that uh, I think it was 2020 when San Francisco passed in a municipal election, passed a um, no voter right, no citizenship requirement to vote in local elections. There was no complaint from the news administration, either Bonta or or Shirley Weber then. Um, and yet here we are. Here's from KQED. The newest member of the San Francisco Elections Commission is a seven. That is the seven member civilian body that oversees and creates policy for the city's elections isn't legally even allowed to vote. Kelly Wong is her name. She's an immigrant rights advocate, and she is believed to be the first non-citizen appointed to the commission at a swearing-in ceremony. Um, she said she hopes her appointment is a beacon of hope for other immigrants living in the city. 
Uh, she writes, uh, she said, I've seen how language and cultural barriers prevent immigrants with limited English proficiency from fully exercising their right to vote. Uh, she got here, uh, Wong did, in 2019 from Hong Kong to pursue graduate studies. She says, look at me. If I can do this, you can too. Uh, so, David, now we've got uh, a non-citizen overseeing elections in San Francisco. And then the third story that I wanted to ask you about, um, a new bill would allow California universities and community colleges to hire undocumented students. You might remember, David, that a few weeks ago we discussed very briefly the fact that the UCs and Cal States had said, look, you know, law bars them from offering jobs to people who are not citizens. They can't do it. Well, the state legislature decided uh, that sucks. The law's wrong. The law's an ass. And so there's a new bill from Assemblyman David Alvarez of San Diego to, um, as the um, uh, Sacramento Bee puts it, uh, he introduced historic legislation this week that would direct the University of California, CSU, and California Community Colleges to employ uh, undocumented students who often struggle, they write, to pay for secure paid on-campus jobs, internships, and research opportunities. Uh, I'll just point out to the to the reporters that that's not a problem that is limited to the undocumented. I can tell you as a kid who uh, had to work his way through college, um, we're responding to a need that is very real, Alvarez said in an interview with the B. They just want to get to work and we can't wait for them to be allowed to do so. Um, so, David, you know, what I'm asking you here is, does citizenship even matter anymore? We have begun to see the real impacts, I think, of California's incentives for illegal immigration, uh, including this new health care provi- uh, provision. But I, I just wonder, like, you know, we're, we're living in this world now where borders don't matter uh, per the Biden administration, really. Um, and certainly, uh, according to the voters of California, we're a sanctuary state. We got sanctuary cities. We do not cooperate with federal authorities on customs or border control. Uh, we offer incentives to people to come here illegally. And now we offer them, you know, really full fledged rights. But if you argue back that maybe, hey, in elections, maybe we could just ask people to show ID, that's a bridge too far. That's racist. That's out of control. David, does the citizenship of the formal sense that I know you and I agree on, does it, does it still matter? You know, how do we, how do we push back on this sort of a thing? Well, you know, you would think it's um, an even easier fight because it is actually one where, unlike a lot of things that you and I may want to fight for, uh, where we are either either in the minority or part of a kind of 50-50 split, this is a case where it's the rare issue that we have a particular opinion and set of views that something like 70% of people agree with us. So this shouldn't be so difficult um, and yet it continues to be. Now, there's a few different things that you've lumped together here, and they are all um, they all are adjacent to one another and with heavy overlap. But the issue of um, voter ID, of having a non-citizen serve in um, an elected role, having a non-citizen be able to be hired in a governmental role, all of those things are very problematic. And yet, um, kind of symptoms of a uh, uh, of the same issue that you're bringing up regarding a low regard for citizenship. So, how do you push back on it? You have to do the homework, the legwork to get a voter ID law on your ballot. And states have passed it, and it will end up being upheld. 
There are far too many things in our society that require um, ID that they are not going to get rid of. And, and to uh, constitutionally rule that requiring an ID is um, racist or unfair is going to put a lot of other civil services in real disarray. So I think that you fight it incrementally, but you fight it with piety and technique, not just piety. In other words, you don't just get mad and righteous. You got to do this the right way. But a lot of times it's hard, like things like paycheck protection, right? We've put three ballots on. We lost all three of them. We had the right side of that argument, and we worked hard um, to do it the right way, to, to, to you know, do the right public persuasion, to hire the right consultants, to have the right marketing strategy. There was a lot of thoroughness that went into it. But the reason we didn't prevail is that we had a minority of, of view and we were unable to become a majority view. This is a little different, Will. We already have the majority view. The public's on our side. So let's do it right. Yeah, I think you know one of the points that you raise is I remember I was electrified in the worst way in the 1980s and even into the early 90s when I would hear Republicans just Just really for, view, for listeners, Will, can you clarify 1990s or 1890s? <laughs> this is after the Chumash Revolt of 1824. Uh, okay. But you know, I was in uh, I was in graduate school, and I started really paying attention to Republican languaging, if you will. And I can remember, you know, people who I, I admire today making what I think was a mistake, and you know, kind of being Trump before Trump, and in talking about immigrants as people who were dirty, filthy, uh, poor, and not ready to to adopt American ways. You know, they they maligned them. Uh, and I, I felt that the personal attacks on the dignity of the individuals was really over the top and that what was necessary was to understand that I, too, would come to America if you know I lived somewhere else. What a great country to come to. But there has to be an orderly way to do that. And I do think that you know my experience on the left in working with people was to be shocked as a white kid walking around barrios and ghettos and talking to people who were poor that they did not want illegal immigration to surge as it had been. They saw this as a direct affront to you know their opportunity for, for jobs, no matter how poorly paid. They were now going to be competing against people who had just gotten here yesterday and were getting government handouts. So um, I, th I think there's a way to handle the humanity of the individual and also the the just absolute truth, the, the certainty of the issue of our rightness on this issue about an orderly immigration process. Hey, David, I wonder, um, I'll just ask you to sit tight for a moment while Sarah rolls in our next segment. That's an interview from California Policy Center attorney Julie Hamill. She interviewed Mark Mix, president of the National Right to Work Foundation. National Right to Work is uh, has been the force behind countless landmark cases, including the Supreme Court's 2018 decision in Janus. Uh, but coming next, Julie talks with Mark about a lawsuit in which National Right to Work alleges that union officials retaliated against the employee of an Ontario, California trucking company for, get this, David, revealing union official salaries, salary information that was already publicly available. So get ready for some cloak and dagger stuff here. Sarah, roll that tape. This is a message from our friends at American Habits from the State Policy Network. We the people. Do you ever think about what that means and what happened to it? We the people certainly did not mean an imperial city full of unelected bureaucrats deciding everything from kindergarten curricula to nursing home funding formulas. We the people mean self-government, a free people 
deciding most things in their families and communities and delegating some authority to their towns and states while passing along just a small amount of that power to the national government. How did things get so upside down at American Habits? We tell stories of real people with real solutions, all working to restore federalism and self-government. If you're a public official, come get involved. If you're a citizen, come and see the new standard for American leadership. No matter who you are, come help us renew the forgotten but not lost habit of American self-government. Visit AmericanHabits.org to learn more. That's AmericanHabits.org. So I am here with Mark Mix with the National Right to Work Foundation. And we are going to talk about um, the latest case that they've got going on in California. So, Mark, thank you very much for joining us. Julie, it's good to have the opportunity to talk with you about this important work and and the courage of a couple of California workers to exercise their rights under labor law. So we're excited about that. So to get started, can you tell me just a little bit about the National Right to Work Foundation and what it is that you do? Yeah, the National Right to Work Foundation has been around since 1968, and we are a legal defense foundation that provides free legal aid to employees across the country. Um, at any given time, we have our 20 staff attorneys are litigating on behalf of, uh, oh, 225 to 250 cases, um, active cases throughout the country. We've argued 18 cases in front of the United States Supreme Court on behalf of individual employees who have the courage to stand up and try to exercise their rights under a federal labor policy that's been handed down, uh, was handed down back in the 1930s, that tends to violate individual freedom and individual liberty and tends to empower union officials uh, and unfortunately sometimes big business when it comes to the rights of individual employees. So. It's been a, a wonderful odyssey for the Legal Defense Foundation, as I mentioned, since 1968, to, to basically be able to provide free legal representation to workers uh, in lots of different situations, primarily as a real result of kind of union intimidation or union coercion or union compulsion. Uh, all of the cases are kind of in that genre, if you will. Uh, but it's been really a, a gratifying uh, opportunity to work for an organization that is willing to help people exercise their rights under the law. And now you said you're talking about union retaliation. And to me, that sounds kind of scary. So when people have a problem, when they are being retaliated against by the union, um, they come to you. And is there any sort of protection that your group can offer to them? Or how, how do you make this a, a safe and comfortable process for people yeah. who are looking to exercise their rights? Yeah, that's a great question. And while we can't be there to physically protect them, um, one of the things that I think happens, Julie, when we make people aware of what's going on in a particular case, or we, we are able to expose and to get attention and sunshine brought to a case, that puts a little damper on union officials trying to maybe go out and do a little more than just kind of verbal intimidation. We've had cases where we represented a, a UPS driver, a guy by the name, um, he was a driver who crossed a picket line back in 1997. And he was, he literally went to work and he was pulled out of his truck at a red light by five or six guys and they stabbed him with an ice pick. And uh, we ended up representing him in a civil lawsuit against the union and the union ended up uh, settling. Uh, we can't really talk about the terms of the settlement because we found out that one of the calls that went out to inform some of these workers about who was going to cross the picket line and what they ought to do to them came from a union president's household. So while we can't physically be there to protect them, we can protect their legal rights, uh, of course. And then by exposing and shining a light on this type of activity, I think union officials have to think twice about going after someone that is, you know, filed a lawsuit or actually filed a claim against them and is getting legal representation. 
vegetation. So we think that, that while it's not a perfect deterrent, we think the idea of sunshine and transparency is something that protects workers from the type of union violence that may occur. And unfortunately, that's part of the equation when it comes to the power that union officials have over workers. I mean, it's amazing to think that, you know, it's not really a, a good argument for them to come back and say, yeah, we have to force people to pay us in order to work. But what they do do is when they lose their arguments, they do result sometimes to physical intimidation and physical violence. And while we hope that we can protect people from that, it's not necessarily uh, something that we can do immediately or physically in the presence, but we can certainly help them exercise their rights if and when or before that type of violence or intimidation occurs. My jaw is on the floor. Um, that is... Yeah. That is very scary and upsetting, and I'm I'm glad that your organization is there to to put sunshine on these issues and to help individual workers. Um, and so, with that, I understand that you recently filed something in Ontario, California, regarding a trucking employee who revealed union boss salaries. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that case and what's going on there? Yeah, Julie. And this is one of the ones that kind of, you know, you're going to have to lower your jaw a little bit more because all that this union member did was went to the reports that the union is required to file with the Department of Labor. It's called an LM2 report. And basically it reports the revenue and expenses and the salary history of the officers who are running the union. And, you know, for the union, union officials got dramatic powers in the 1930s under the Roosevelt administration. And then in 1947, Congress tried to roll back a little bit of that power. They really weren't that successful. But one thing that happened that was very dramatic is, is organized crime got very involved in the union movement, particularly the Teamsters Union. And in 1959, the United States Senate uh, conducted what was called the Landrum-Griffin hearings. And they passed the Landrum-Griffin Act, which basically provided individual employees the ability to get information about the unions and how they were spending money. And union officials didn't like that. They still don't like it to this day that somehow they're they're required to report their financial uh, machinations to their rank and file members that they claim to represent. And so what happened here, uh, a, a truck driver at, at, defend, at Dependable um, Express Highway Express went to the LM2 form, found out what the salaries were for the union business agents and the officers of the of his local union, and he sent that information out to the workers that were under the union contract. And within the next day of that letter going out, a union official came to his workplace and basically said, hey, you know, it's pretty likely you're not going to be working when we negotiate our next contract. And, you know, kind of gave him the, the the stinky eye, if you will, about exposing any of this information to his to his colleagues and his brothers and sisters that are working in the union. And this is the kind of intimidation and the kind of coercion that is part and parcel of a labor policy that gives union officials this dramatic power to, one, force association with a union that a worker may not have asked for, may not have voted for, and never wanted, but force them to associate. And then in California, because it's not a right-to-work state, force them to pay dues or fees to the union as a condition of getting or keeping their job. So in this case, you know, so John Swick, who is our client here, who we filed the charges on behalf of because he was intimidated by a Teamster official, he if he didn't pay the fee to the union, he would lose his job within 30 days. That's the outrage of all this. And then to add insult to injury, 
to have a union official come by and say, oh, by the way, quit paying attention to what we're spending our money on, spending your money on, I should say more correctly, um, and intimidating him and threatening him with, with dismissal from the job for basically disclosing what is supposed to be transparent information is a real problem. But unfortunately, Julie, this is not a one-off. This is a, a situation we run into and workers run into across the country all the time. And that's why we have 225 to 250 active cases, um, not necessarily specifically all like this, but all about the type of power that union officials have been granted over private sector workers in the country. Okay, my jaw is still on the floor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so my understanding is that in California, it's not a right to work state. Um, and Janice doesn't apply here because this is not a public sector union, right? This is a private sector union. Yeah, that's correct, Julie. Uh, public sector workers are covered by the Janus decision, which is a case we litigated in the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, argued and won back in 2018. But unfortunately, when the Supreme Court said that all government workers have First Amendment constitutional rights to avoid being forced to pay dues or fees to keep their jobs for government, those rights don't apply to public se or private sector workers now yet. We're going to get there someday, um, whether it be through litigation or through legislation. But yeah, that's right. These are private sector workers, and they don't have the same constitutional rights right now that public sector workers have under Janus. So in California, what you're telling me is that these private sector workers, if their workplace is unionized, they can be forced to pay dues or lose their job? That's exactly right. And 24 states in the country, including California, have those. They, they, well, the states don't have the laws on the books. Julie, that's the interesting part about this. That privilege and that power for union officials comes from flows from the federal government from the Roosevelt administration in the 1930s. So California specifically does not have a law in the books that say private sector workers have to pay union dues or fees. That power is comes from the federal government and it's applied in California for pri private sector workers. In the right to work states, the 26 states that have right to work laws, the state legislatures actually passed legislation saying that we are allowed to get outside the federal preemption when it comes to labor policy, and we can pass what are known as right-to-work laws. So the 26 states have passed a law saying we're not going to allow union officials to fire workers if they don't pay dues or fees. California, and unfortunately, the folks in Sacramento haven't done that yet, and probably maybe unlikely that they will uh, with the current governor and the current uh, state legislature, but that power is a federal power given to the states or basically imposed on the state saying that union officials can have you fired if you don't tender dues or fees to the union for the privilege of working. Holy moly. Okay. And so when you're talking about the federal uh, law and federal policy, are you talking about the National Labor Relations Act or are you talking about a different law? No, that's the National Labor Relations Act. And that's the that's the kind of the combination of three different major congressional actions. The one, the first one was in 1935 when they passed what is known as the Wagner Act. And interestingly enough, Julie, that case was, uh, that, that bill was originally passed by Congress. It was known as the National Industrial Recovery Act. It was passed by the House, passed by the Senate, signed by President Roosevelt, and it was overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court as being unconstitutional. Well, within two weeks of the Supreme Court ruling, Roosevelt had the bill reintroduced 
as the Wagner Act in 1935. And in the meantime, he sent a letter over to the United States Supreme Court saying to Chief Justice Frankfurter saying, you know, you guys are getting old over there. And we think that if you uh, if you're not interested in, in upholding my agenda, my New Deal agenda, then maybe we'll just pack the court with six additional justices. And Chief Justice Frankfurter and Associate Justice Roberts changed their votes and basically approved the constitutionality of the Wagner Act in 1937. And since then, union officials have had this power. It started out as an imposition on all 50 states. And then when in 1947, when Congress came back in and passed the Taft-Hartley Act, which is part of the National Labor Relations Act now, they said that states, if they could, by affirmative vote, could pass right-to-work laws and preempt the federal law that imposes forced unionism on states like California. And then we had the Landry-Griffin Act in 1959 that tried to roll back and try to create some transparency for workers about what the union was up to. And that those three kind of make up the national labor policy that is federally imposed on all the states right now. Okay. And so, so you're telling me that it sounds like back in the 1930s, we had similar issues with the politicization of the United States Supreme Court that we are seeing right now, and that the political pressure actually influenced justices to change their vote, which is very troubling to me, but also makes me feel a little bit better about what's going on in today's politics. Um, and so... With respect to the National uh, Labor Relations Act, I understand that in this action with Mr. Zwick, um, it's being alleged that the Teamsters Local 63 violated Section 8B1A of the Act. Can you explain um, more about that particular section and what it does for workers? Yeah, Section 8B1 is kind of protection for workers, and it basically says that workers have certain protected rights um, when it comes to concerted activity for joining a union, talking about unions, or not talking about unions, and that that this, the National Labor Relations Act, allegedly, part of the Taft-Hartley Act, that basically came in and gave, you know, reined in union power a little bit from the Wagner Act of 1935, saying that, you know, the unions can't intimidate workers when it comes to this kind of thing. And that's a pretty standard charge under the National Labor Relations Act that protects individual employees. Now, union officials use this all the time when they say employers have violated, you know, the laboratory conditions that must exist for union elections, and they must protect and and avoid violating the protected activity of, of individual workers. This is kind of a man bites dog story because we're using that same labor policy to protect the rights of an individual employee from the labor union, as opposed to the labor union officials using it to basically in keep their power intact over employees by regulating what the employer can say or do when it comes to unionization. So this is a pretty standard protection uh, area for employees under AP1. And it basically says that, you know, you have to protect the rights. And Julie, you won't be surprised by this, but when the Wagner Act passed back in 1935, it had this really beautiful preamble saying, you know, the workers have the right to mutually associate for benefits and, and they can get together and join together to amplify their voice. I'm paraphrasing. And it says also has the right to refrain. And if they would have stopped right there and put a period at that point, then workers would would have the individual liberty and, and freedom to make decisions on their own. But they didn't stop there. They said the right to refrain, except to the extent that workers can be compelled to join unions as, as a condition of employment under the act. So we had this federal, this federal power that's predicated on, and it's literally predicated on labor peace, meaning 
we can't afford to have unions beating people up. So we have to put in this power, this special privilege for them to force workers into this collective, because by forcing workers into collectives they may not agree with, we can manage labor peace better and better manage the, the marketplace. That's the theory behind all this labor policy is that they've got to they've maintain labor peace. And labor peace means if you give the unions what they want or they do bad things like they try to do here. And so under this little section of the National Labor Relations Act, we're using it to protect the, the, right, the rights of individual employees to have their say about what the union's doing in their workplace. And this, you know, no clearer example than just simply sending out, hey, do you know that our union boss president, our union president's making $275,000 a year? Do you know that the union steward is making, you know, $200,000 a year or whatever? I think he exposed the salaries of five or six officers, and that's what the union didn't like. And that's why they came to him and said, hey, look it, buddy, you may not be around much longer, so knock it off. Wow. Okay. So what are the next steps in this particular case? Well, we'll figure out what the National Labor Relations Board will do with this and see if they'll decide to bring a complaint or a charge against the union for this type of activity. Unfortunately, Julie, you may not be surprised by this either. The National Labor Relations Board is is basically is is supposed to be five members. Currently, there are four members of the board. There are three former union lawyers on the board, and there's one former staffer, com a committee staffer from the House of Representatives that serve, and there's one vacancy. Uh, the general counsel, the top lawyer of the National Labor Relations Board, is is a former union lawyer as well. And they have not been very friendly to individual employee rights. They've been extremely friendly to union officials and their drive for more compulsory unions and power in the workplace. They've been very good at expanding through precedent by filing certain charges and proceeding on certain cases and then not proceeding on others to basically set a landscape that is very, very dramatically unbalanced to one side. And that is the power of union officials over workers. And part of that, you know, one of the powers that that union officials exert over employers is the power they have over employees. And so as the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, which adjudicates our National Labor Relations Act, as they decide more cases and decide to issue complaints or not issue complaints, and believe it or not, the general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board has unreviewable discretion when it comes to issuing complaints or not issuing complaints. I mean, that's a power that very few people in the country have. I mean, even the president of the United States has reviewable discretion when it comes to his actions by the Congress and the checks and balances of our system. The, net, the general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board has unreviewable discretion when it comes to issuing complaints. So we'll see. Maybe this case will be dismissed. Maybe it'll go forward. We don't know. But what we have to do is continue to expose this type of behavior by union officials by using cases like this. And frankly, Julie, the important part, using and, and playing off the courage of workers like Mr. Zwick to actually have the courage to stand up and say, you know what, I'm going to fight this and I'm going to fight for my rights. And so when people do that, we're glad that we can provide that legal aid and do stuff like we're doing here in this particular case and the other cases across the country right now. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So it sounds like the composition of the NLRB is very similar to California's PERB. Um, yes. I think it's all a very similar composition. Um, so what happens if if the NLRB does not bring a complaint or charge? Are there any other options? Recourse is very limited. I mean, it, it's... 
I get frustrated by it all the time, Julie, and I'm around it all, all day long. And and uh, we had a meeting. We'll have a meeting with our our legal director tomorrow, and he'll give us the latest cases. I mean, we're we're representing Starbucks employees that want to decertify unions across the country, and the NLRB has dismissed all of those petitions so far, saying no way can you have a vote to throw the union out. I mean, we're we're figuring out a litigation strategy there. We actually filed a case out of the Fifth Circuit in Texas that challenges the constitutionality of the National Labor Relations Board to the extent that they have this executive authority, but they have no recourse. Um, it's interesting. Uh, Elon Musk and his attorneys have filed a very similar case, actually cribbing our argument in our case out of Texas on behalf of a Starbucks barista. And he's saying that that's uh, Trader Joe's has just filed a case based on the same legal principle about the kind of this unbelievable judge, jury, and executioner uh, power that the National Labor Relations Board has to decide these cases. The only way that generally an employer can get outside the NLRB is once the union's in there, they can refuse to bargain. And then after some period of time, they get access to the federal courts. But basically, you have to exhaust all your remedies at this administrative agency before you can get into any other type of situation where you may get redress of your grievance. And it's a really amazing story when you look at it. And this, the deck is completely stacked against individual workers. It, I mean, there are seasons when, you know, businesses get some favor from a Republican administration or an NLRB that may be more inclined to be a more, little more balanced. When Obama was in power, when Biden's in power, the balance is so skewed the other way that employees are the party that's left out of all this. And that's why these types of cases and the types of ongoing cases we're filing on behalf of employees is so important just to, you know, try to Keep filling the pipeline with these cases, and sometime we get a break. For example, we got a case, we won a case back in 2007 called Dana, where the union was was granted permission to represent everyone through a card check union representation, meaning there was no secret ballot election. Workers, the union got these cards signed by whatever means, by hook or by crook, to get a card signed. And once they had a majority plus one, they presented it to the employer, and the union, the employer had to recognize the union for everybody in the unit, even those people that didn't even know there was a card check organizing drive going on. They were now in the union. We got them the ability to get a secret ballot election within a 45-day window post-certification of a union on a card check. Immediately when Obama came in, his NLRB overturned that. When Trump came in, they put it back in. Biden's people come back in, they overturned it again. So now we've got these, you know, this kind of tennis match about employee rights, but it's a really interesting case study when it comes to how individual employees are the ones that suffer the most through all of this. And this case is another example of that. Okay. So the NLRB uh, adjudicators are appointed by the presidential administration. Is that correct? Nominated by the president, confirmed by the Senate. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And so those turnover with each administration, they're not serving for life. Well, they serve five-year terms. One per one term comes up every year. So you've got basically four that are in. And it's kind of interesting. Um, and President Biden, just to show you how important this is to union officials, the general counsel serves on a four-year term. And basically that term starts and they can act it out. In the Obama administration, the general counsel who came from the Bush administration served out his term. And then Obama got to nominate a new general counsel. 23 seconds into the Biden administration, an email went out to the current general counsel who was appointed by, by Donald Trump, said, look, either resign or be fired. And by five o'clock that afternoon, the general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board, an independent agency, the, the chief lawyer was fired by Biden. 
His deputy replaces him. The next day she comes in, she gets an email, says either resign or be fired by five o'clock. And sure enough, she was fired by five o'clock the next day of the Biden administration. And they've got a general counsel now, as I mentioned, a former union lawyer that has basically expanded union power dramatically over the last three years. But it is, to your point, it's kind of a tennis match. You know, the ball goes over the net one way, then it comes back the next way. And the one thing that's really unfortunate about this is not only for individual employee rights, but for employers. I mean, what rules govern the way you 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 govern your employees in the workplace? I mean, it changes every couple of years. And that's why we think the idea of a National Labor Relations Board and their this kind of judge, jury, and executioner power they have is something that ought to be checked. And that's kind of the legal theory we're promoting in that case in the Fifth Circuit about the constitutionality of the entire board. Can you tell me the name of that case? That one is called Cortez, and that's in the First Circuit. That's on behalf of a Starbucks employee uh, there. We've, I think we filed it in the in the Second Circuit, which would be New York as well, on behalf of a barista up there. Um, I forget her name. Uh, I, Jacob can get you that name if you want to add it. I know we're recording, but um, we've got cases on behalf of 15 Starbucks units right now where we're trying to help employees decertify. And because the NLRB is rejecting um, what is a, a legitimately filed petition for a decertification election, which should basically say the only question on the table should be to the NLRB is, do they have the requisite number of signatures for decertification? If they do, then we should schedule a secret ballot election. But because of this ongoing national battle with Starbucks that the union is having, actually, it's the Service Employees International Union. And sure enough, you know about the Service Employees International Union in California. They're one of the two most powerful unions in your state. Ask me being the second. I think they'd argue about who is more powerful, but they both have significant power. But they're the ones behind the Starbucks United Union that's pushing this national unionization drive against Starbucks. And because the NLRB, because the union has filed an unfair labor practice charge against national Starbucks, they're blocking all of these local elections, whether or not any of the allegations against national Starbucks has anything to do with the local baristas in, say, Minneapolis, Minnesota or Dallas, Texas or whatever. They're just applying it across the board saying nobody gets an election because someone at Starbucks National said something they didn't like, which is really outrageous, really outrageous. This is a mess. Um, yes. So if you were in charge of it all and you had all of the power and authority, um, how would you resolve this problem? Is there a legislative solution to this or or what what yeah. would remedy this? Yeah, well, we believe that there's there's a one page bill that's currently pending in the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate. That does not add a single word to federal law. Now, don't be shocked. Your jaw, your your jaw may hit the floor if there's a federal law that actually takes words out of the federal labor policy. It doesn't add a single word. This bill is called the National Right to Work Act. We had a hearing on it in the House Representatives Committee back on November 30th, and literally, Julie, it's a one-page bill. It doesn't add a single word to federal law. It simply says that the bias in federal law will be in favor of voluntary unionism. That we'll take out the compulsion, we'll take out the force, and we'll say, look, if you want to join a union and you want to amplify your vo voice in the workplace, have at it. Federal law will protect your right to join a union, to associate with a union. Federal law will protect your right to give your entire paycheck to a union if you want. But no one in the country can be forced by federal law to pay dues or fees to a union to get or keep a job. That would change the dynamic dramatically. The bias would be in favor of voluntary unionism as opposed to forced unionism, where it is now. And union officials, get this, 
would have to learn how to sell a product to workers in order to get them to opt in to the union as opposed to opt out of the union when they're forced into these union collectives. And the real kind of underlying, you know, rot and just just disgust of this whole thing is only about six or seven percent of current union members have ever voted to be in the union. These are legacy union contracts that go back to the 1940s, where the union just every five years they get a new contract. And they, I mean, there's not one single employee at GM, Ford, or Chrysler that ever voted on being in the union. That contract came from 1937 when the sit-down strike in Flint, Michigan, by Walter Ruther. I mean, these workers have never had the chance to get out or get in or vote for to get out or get in. It's just applied to them. So when you have a federal labor policy that has this compulsion written into the very bloodline of, of the law, we think a voluntary labor policy, we think we ought to repeal the National Labor Relations Act completely, ultimately, and get the states back into federalism and making being laboratories for labor policy across the country. And those states that do it right will attract jobs like Florida and Texas. Unfortunately, your state that's doing it wrong is losing people to Florida and Texas. So you got more U-Hauls going out than you got coming in, if I understand the migration patterns of California. Yeah, that sounds about right, based on what I've seen. Um, can you tell me where the National Right to Work Act bill is right now? It was approved by... Well, house? it was in a committee. We haven't had okay. a we haven't had a vote yet, but it's uh, HR 1200 in the House. I think it's got 125 co-sponsors, and it's uh, Senate Bill. Oh my gosh, I should know the bill off that. Rand Paul is a sponsor in the Senate, and uh, Joe Wilson from South Carolina is a sponsor in the House. We have 31 senators who've co-sponsored in the Senate. Obviously, getting movement in the Senate is going to be a little more difficult with Chuck Schumer in charge. But that bill, the National Right to Work Act, is literally, like I said, a one-page bill. Doesn't add a single word to federal law. We think it's great policy. We know that. Eight out of 10 Americans believe it's wrong to force workers to pay dues or fees to just to get or keep a job in America, including about 60% of union households believe that. Um, so forced unionism is a special privilege and a special power. And how it manifests itself is just like it's manifesting itself right here in, in this case in Ontario, uh, California, Julie. Um, it's all a result of kind of this power that union officials have. And frankly, this is why they have to play politics at such a large scale every two years, because their privilege, whether it be in California and Sacramento or whether it be in Washington, D.C. and Congress, their privilege and power is a result of government action. It's not a result of them winning the hearts and minds of adherents. It's in their ability to force bodies into their union collectives and then use those bodies to collect money to spend on politics, which basically expand their power in California and United States Congress. It's this vicious cycle of compulsion and forced fees that feed the system that we need to stop it. The right to work laws in the 26 states stop it there. The Janus decision stops it for public sector workers across the nation, but there's still a whole lot of work to do on educating workers about their rights, not only the Janus decision, um, and I know lots of people are working on that in California, that's a great thing, um, but they also need to do that across the country, and we need to let private sector workers know what their rights are, albeit limited in states like California, but they still have rights that they need to protect, like our client here in this case in Ontario. So in California, and I know I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I have so many questions for you. I just Please. have a few, few more yeah. and then I'll wrap it up. Yeah. But um, in my observation, in California, unions tend to be the biggest contributors to the Democratic Party. And in California, we have a supermajority legislature uh Democrats. Yep. So I'm wondering, in your observation, what do you see as the relationship between unions and the Democratic Party? 
<laughs> it's a it's a direct pipeline from uh, from union treasuries to p political campaigns. I mean, Julie, I I will tell you this: um, the the United Auto Workers Union uh, just two weeks ago endorsed Joe Biden's reelection for president. And that's a 14 member executive committee that makes that decision on behalf of what are about 380,000 United Auto Workers. Uh, about 50 or 60,000 of them are California State University employees, graduate assistants and others out there. There are there are more. Uh, the United Auto Workers have less auto workers than they have nurses and, and graduate assistants in the state of California. I think the CU, the CU system has 48,000 United Auto Workers members, and GM has about 48,000 United Auto Workers uh, in their midst. But Sean Fain said this. He was on Neil Cavuto on Fox News, um, or Fox, whatever that, Fox Business, whatever that's called. And he literally said this, and I'm quoting. He said, let me be clear. A great majority of our workers will not be voting for Joe Biden. They will be voting for their, voting their paycheck and what makes them better off. But the union just endorsed Joe Biden the day before. And I don't know if that was a Freudian slip or a, a Kinsley gaffe or whatever it is you call that when you're when you actually tell the truth out loud that you're not supposed to tell. But literally, that's what he said. And let's take the United Auto Workers political contributions. Ninety eight point five percent of all their donations go to one party. Julie, you mentioned it. I won't mention it, but it goes to the Democrat Party. And so. The other day, I think Donald Trump was up in Michigan and an added auto workers, an auto worker stood up with his T-shirt on saying, we're going to support you, Donald Trump. And but yet his money, if he's a member of the UAW, his money is going to be spent to support a candidate that he opposes. And that's one of the another injustice of forced unionism is the ideological conformity that comes with the unions to be able to take the money from a worker and spend it on politics, which they disagree with. It's outrageous, but you're right. It's a direct pipeline right to one party and particularly in California. This is blowing my mind and my, my jaw has been on the floor for this entire conversation. Um, I am assuming that our listeners are going to want to find out more information about you and your organization. Where can we send them? Yeah, if they have questions about their rights in the workplace, for example, how do they exercise their Janus rights if they're public employees, they can find information about their legal rights at the Legal Defense Foundation's website, which is nrtw.org nrtw.org. If they're interested in what's going on legislatively, whether it be in California or any other state where someone may be listening or legislation in the United States Congress, they can go to the National Right to Work Committee's website, which is nrtwc.org, nrtwc.org. And they can find, they can go to a little map, they can click on their state, click on California, and you can see what's going on and the bills that we're following that would expand union power dramatically. We, you know, we have a fairly narrow band of of issues that we follow, the genre of forced unionism is kind of the 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 blinders we have on. And so most of the legislation we're following, whether it be in California or in Congress, deals with giving new powers to union officials or reducing their power as it comes to as it relates to forced unionism. So nrtw.org for legal questions, nrtwc.org for legislative questions. Great. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Um your work is phenomenal and very much needed. And I hope that many, many people listen to this and learn about how the system works because it's it's truly shocking. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you for everything you do. And it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Julie, it's been my privilege. Thank you and appreciate your interest in this. And uh, unfortunately, I think we'll probably have more cases in California, probably starting tomorrow, but we'll keep you posted, let you know what we're up to. Definitely keep us posted. Thank you so much.
David, that's all we have time for today. Thanks for spending your time with us, listeners. You can always find Radio Free California podcasts on the National Review website, but it would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe. Please email us with your comments and story suggestions, as so many of you do. You'll find that information in the show notes. On behalf of my friend and co-host, David Bonson, we give thanks as ever to our session producers. That's Lucas Klaus, Brian Tong, and Glenn Hall, and also to National Review podcast producer Sarah Schutte, who's always doing this extra homework to uh, make us sound terrific. Thanks also to Metalachi, that's the LA-based mariachi metal band, for our music, La Revolución Continua en la Semana Proxima.